So we're in Acts chapter 10, so if you'll turn your Bibles there. But one thing that uh, I was thinking about, uh, because this is an important chapter and an important uh, uh, event in the life of the church, in the life of redemptive history. And so, but one of those things that I just thought through, there's been different events that I've lived through. I'm 54, so I've lived through a few events. But the one that I just remember vividly when I was first thinking about this was, uh, it was at about 6.50 in the morning or so. And uh, we were living in Pittsburgh, California. I was at church, or we were working at a church up in the Bay Area. And all of a sudden, we got this phone call. Now, I'm up and I'm going, but Renee's not up. <laughs> and, and we had two little kids at home. And so I'm thinking, who in the world is calling us so early? And it turns out it was Renee's dad. And he said, turn on the TV now. This is on September 11th, 2001. And I think we all know uh, that day, 911, right? We saw, we saw uh, at that point, we saw the burning buildings, or the, one of the towers. And then, we, and then as we were watching, we saw, I don't know how much longer after watching, we saw the other one fly into the building. And uh, boy, that was shocking. It really turned our world upside down here in America for sure. And there's still consequences some 20 years later, right? We still have men fighting in the Middle East because of this. So it was one of those events that made you rethink, you know, stop, drop, and roll, right? There's something, something just happened here that's very uh, significant. And I know that many of you have lived through other events as well. And there's a generation that lived through World War II. And that, they're passing away now, but that, that changed. Boy, that really upset the world <laughs> on even a grander scale. But tonight, what we're looking at is even bigger. But it's, it's bigger for all the right reasons. Here we see God uh, really breaking down the last barrier uh, of, in, in the advance of the gospel. The, the promise from Jesus, hey, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth is now, this is, what, this is the door opening. Last week when I, I preached on Peter, so two weeks ago we talked about Paul and, well, Saul and his conversion, and we said, look, that's, he was going to be the key man to bring the, the gospel to the Gentiles. But then after his conversion, he's kind of sent away to Tarsus, and then we have Peter back on the scene, and it seems weird in the flow of the story, if Paul is supposed to be the man, why is Peter back in? Well, Peter is the leader of the church. He's the, he's the spokesman for the, the apostles. And at each significant point in, salva in this new covenant salvation uh, stage, <laughs> the big new covenant, he's been the man to, to usher it in. He preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost, right? When devout Jews heard the gospel and responded, and we said the church began. Then he was the one who went up to Samaria. Philip brought the gospel, but he went up with John to be the one to affirm their salvation, praying on them. They, they received the Holy Spirit, and then he, he, they essentially were coming under the authority of the church. Because remember, in Samaria, they had started a rival temple. And so the Samaritans being brought into the body of Christ are also with Peter and John there symbolically coming under the authority of the apostles. There's only one church in this new covenant age. And then Peter going back to Jerusalem to report, hey, the Samaritans are fully in. That was a huge obstacle. And then here, Peter comes back on the stage and we see him, he's, he's going about preaching, uh, proclaiming the Lord, he's, he's doing miracles, he's evangelizing, but he's also ministering to the new church. So Peter's back on the scene because something significant is going to happen. We got a taste of it with, with uh, you know, Saul's conversion, and, and so we know something is changing. And Saul being that, that special man who is from, who was born in the Hellenized world, educated there, but also educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So here's a special man who will be the catalyst to get the gospel out to the, to the Roman world, the, the Roman Empire. But it has to be Peter that ushers this in. And that's why he's back on the scene. And that's what we're going to see here now uh, as God continues to advance the gospel, advance his kingdom. But before we read that, 
all right? You need some more important background. So if you'll turn to the book of Jonah for me, with me. Go to Jonah chapter 1, the Old Testament. Jonah, a prophet in Israel. And he is, he is, he is really a, a picture of the Jewish mindset of, of their thought their thoughts, their attitude towards the world around them. Because this is the attitude that has been solidified by the time of, of Jesus and the apostles. So let me just read this to you. We're looking and we'll start in just verses 1 through 3. And we'll jump down to verse uh, 10 and then 14 through 16. So I'll just have your Bibles open and be ready to follow along with me. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Instead of going north, he goes west. <laughs> From the pre he goes, he fle fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's silly because you can't flee from God. He went down to Joppa. Where's Peter in, in Acts? He's in Joppa. That's why I keep bringing it up. This is where Jonah, the unfaithful, the, the rebellious prophet, this is where he, he flees. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. That's in the west somewhere. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It's a couple times. I'm not going to listen to God. I can flee God. No, you can't. God of Israel is not a localized God. He's the reigning sovereign over the whole universe God. So bad thinking on his part. But he's rebellious. Sin makes you dumb. Now jump down to verse 10. I'm, I'm just giving you snippets. He's on this ship and there's a great storm. And they're wondering, the, these, these Gentile sailors are wondering, what's going on? Why is this happening? They start asking people on the boat. And then they approach uh, they approach Jonah, and he says, yeah, I'm, it's probably because of me. I'm trying to flee God. <laughs> then the men, verse 10, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them they had more faith in God than he did. These Gentile sailors. Go to verse 14. And, and so he says, the way, hey, just go ahead and throw me over, overboard, and God will be good with you guys. You'll be free, right? So they throw him overboard. He gets swallowed up by a fish in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord. They're calling him Yahweh. This is the word for Yahweh here. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Wow, so some Gentiles, I mean, they're, 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 they're actually worshiping, and, and they're seeing what's going on here. So we got Jonah, he's fleeing from God. He's a rebellious prophet, and in the midst of his, his stubborn disobedience, God is still glorified because we see Gentiles, they're, they're seeing what's going on. And, and they're, and they're turn, actually worshiping God. So Jonah's in, go down to chapter 2, and I'm going to look, I'm going to look at verse 9. He sings this, or this is part of his prayer to God. Oh, Lord, you know, I'm stuck in the belly of this great fish. Please, please deliver me. Notice what he says in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, that's a true statement, but here's the deal. Here's a man who wanted to be saved, but he didn't want to bring the message of salvation to the Ninevites like God had told them to. Again, this is background. This is the mentality of many Jews at this time, of his time, but it's even worse during the time of Jesus. It's, it's solidified in the minds of the, of the Jews. Uh, go down to chapter 3, uh, verses 4 through 10. Jonah began to go into the city, city of Nineveh, huge city, capital of the hated Assyrians. They were brutal when they conquered a city. Well, I, for, for their sake, I won't tell all the gory details, but they were brutal. 
The Jews had been, you know, they were under oppression by them. They hadn't been conquered yet, but they were the hated Assyrians, all right? So he goes to, into the city, finally obeying God, going a day's journey, meaning it takes a long time to go all the way through the city. And he called out, here's his message from God, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he's preaching. All right? Message of doom. <laughs> and the people of Nineveh believed God. Hey, that's a pretty simple message, and yet they believed. They, what in the world? And the people of Nineveh believed God. Not only that, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. A simple message by a rebellious prophet who has a bad attitude about it, and yet what does God do? He brings about repentance. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or, nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Bad attitude, Jonah. Simple message. Total turning of the Gentiles. This book serves as an indictment on the Jews, but it goes further. It goes further. The story's not done. Well, verse 10, I'll just tell you this. When God saw that what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. And then verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Angry with who? God. And he prayed to the Lord, oh, and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I wanted you to kill them. <laughs> what kind of a heart is that? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He was suicidal. He was so angry, he became depressed and was sued. That's what he's saying. <laughs> this is a Jewish prophet of the Most High God. The people repented. And turned a whole city. He goes on, he's, he's, he makes himself the shelter outside the city. And there's a plant that grows up to bring shade for him in the hot sun. And then all of a sudden it, it dies. In verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed... This is an illustration, by the way, of, of, of what happens here. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he, was, he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, you, do you do well to be angry for the plant, this plant that had withered up? He said, and, and Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's stomping his foot. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand nor from their left, and also much cattle? That's how it ends. What in the world? You care more about this plant and how you feel than you did for 120,000 people who repented. Folks, this book is an indictment on the Jews, okay? Not to cast them away, but about their attitude towards the nations. It was not supposed to be that way. Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, what is the last part of the blessing in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4? 
your, your people will be appointed to bless the nations. To bless the nations. In, in Psalm 2, the, the son is to rule over the nations. Psalm 22, many passages talk about this Messiah who's supposed to be bring light to the world and to rule with, with mercy and graciousness. A strong hand for sure. Hey, look for Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read Isaiah 2, 1 through 3. The word, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And here's what he saw. It shall come to pass in the latter days, end of days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, chief. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, listen, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The point is, at the end, the nations are supposed to come to worship. They would recognize the reigning Messiah and see that's, that's the true God. So, again... All that is to say is that what is happening in chapter 10 is the great confrontation of God against the Jewish attitude towards the Gentiles. The gospel is this new covenant message that God, his point is to bring salvation to all peoples. And chapter 10 and 11 gets a lot of play because this is a momentous event in salvation history momentous. So I'm not going to, I'm going to read the whole section 10 through 1118, because that's the entire picture. But we're going to only focus in on verses one through 33 tonight, just to walk through and then we'll finish up next week. But again, as you're reading this section, there's actually three kind of chunks to it. In God's perfect timing, the people prepared to receive the gospel. That's verses one through 33. That's what we're looking at tonight. We have Cornelius prepared and we have Peter being prepared, all right? We're going to see Peter has to learn what the gospel, he doesn't understand all of the gospel in its entirety and what it's supposed to mean. He has to learn too. Then in verses 34 through 48, we'll look at that next week, but we see by God's amazing grace, the gospel salvation is for all peoples. That's what Peter, when he declares the gospel. And then finally, when Peter goes back to Jerusalem to announce this amazing event, we see that these Gentiles are being united into God's family, and the church rejoices at the inclusion of the Gentiles. They still don't understand how it's supposed to all play out totally, but we see this is a big deal, all right? So that's the journey we're on. And, and as we read, keep some points in mind. I think I have this in your notes. Maybe I don't. But uh, first of all, notice as we're reading, Christ's kingdom and its relentless advance, overcoming obstacles, persecution, prejudice, and peoples, meaning the Gentiles. Right? That's one thing you should pay attention to. Second thing is you pay attention to God's initiative in salvation. We see that God brings salvation to people who are being faithful, but he brings it and he takes initiative in saving and carrying his kingdom forward. Pentecost was not prayed into existence. Pentecost happened on God's timetable, right? Saul was not seeking God. God sought him, right? So we have all these things happening. We have the, the Ethiopian eunuch. He wasn't seeking to know about Jesus Christ. He was reading and didn't understand, so God provided Philip. So we, all the way through, so notice in here what happens too. God takes the initiative. He chooses, he brings the gospel to save, and he prepares people to hear. And also three, that we need to notice that God's grace always contradicts man's expectations. Always. <laughs> we cannot limit how God's going to do things. He follows his, the way he says he's going to do things, but when he does things, it's always, whoa. <laughs> All right, because God does that. But also, too, notice that God works through people. He doesn't need us to do any of this, but he chooses to use people. But who does he use? People who are being faithful. Day-to-day -day faithful obedience in just where you're at, wanting to serve him, wanting to be a blessing to others with your particular set of skills, abilities, 
experiences, whatever, that whole, that whole mix, and you're just trying to serve God. That's who God uses, but he uses people to advance his kingdom. Unlikely people, many times. So, we're going we're gonna to start reading through this, and I'm going to read. We're now in Acts chapter 10, and we're going to read. It's going to take a little bit. It's a big chunk, but remember, as we're reading, don't just listen to me. Be thinking about what was it like for these real people at that time. This is history. This is narrative. We're supposed to jump into the story along with them. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 10, and starting in verse 1. So at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour, 3 p.m. of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! (laughs) And he stared at him in terror and said, "Uh, What is it, Lord? And and. The Lord said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I'm sorry, the angel said this. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Caesarea is 37 miles north along the coast from Joppa. So just so you have an, have an idea, and we'll talk about Caesarea in a minute. The next day, okay, now change in scene. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, 12 noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common, profane, or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common, profane. This happened three times. He has this vision. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. He has this vision. He's not sure all that it means. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, pay attention, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, pay attention, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? He doesn't know why. God's not giving him all the details. He's just expecting step-by-step obedience. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send and to send for you uh, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he, meaning Peter, invited them in to be his guests. Whew. Okay, we'll talk about that. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how it is unlawful, or how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with 
with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He got the point of the vision now. Now it clicked as he was going with them. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? Okay, he knows now that it's okay, but what is it that they want? He still doesn't have all the information. And Cornelius said, he's got to tell his part of his vision now. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., time of the Jewish prayers, afternoon prayer. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter's like, oh, you want to hear? I got something for you. Okay, the, okay I'm, I'm gonna, I, this is where we'll end up our sermon today. But this is a, a, the things that are happening here are momentous. Don't, we'll get into that. So now Peter. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, no distinctions now. I get it. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, including you, including Julius Caesar. Talk about that next week. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's the gospel. We'll look at that, not this week, but next. While Peter was still saying these things, as he's saying these things, <laughs> the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, praising God, lifting God up. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. <laughs> Surprise, right? Stay with us a little bit longer. We need to learn a little bit more. Now the apostles and the brothers who were, through, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is huge. And, and that's what this vision needs to happen that we'll talk about tonight. This is, this is so ingrained in them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order, in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. See, he's going to explain exactly, point by point, what his vision was. Looking at it closely, verse 6, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. No distinction between Jew and Gentile. This is, this, things are changing. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. They were his witnesses of what had happened. And he told us how we had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your, all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they, meaning the church at Jerusalem, heard these things, they fell silent. They stopped their criticizing, and now they had to think, oh my goodness. And here's what they did. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Wow. So we're going to dig into this a little bit. We're we're only going to do verses 1 through 33. And it's, the story really is, I mean, it's, it's, once you read the whole thing and you, you know, you get it, you see the, you see what's happening, you understand it. But I think a little bit more background will be helpful. Are we going to be here till midnight? No, we're not. <laughs> we will be done at the right time. <laughs> no, we're not going to go too long. So here we got, we, we have Peter, he's now the man on the scene. And uh, he, it actually, this section doesn't even start with Peter, it starts with Cornelius. We have Cornelius, he's in Caesarea and he has a vision. Uh, first of all, his, he's a centurion. I'm just going to go through how the Bible describes him. He's a centurion, meaning he's the, he's the leader of a hundred men in, in, a, in the Italian cohort, it says. The Italian cohort, it was the cohort stationed there at Caesarea. Uh, a cohort, so what it was is you'd have you'd have. 10 cohorts made up of 600 men. So a legion was six, six of these centuries. Bottom line is, here's what you need to remember. He led 100 men, all right? So he was not just a common uh, soldier. He led 100 men, and he was well-known. He was well-known because he was known as a devout man who was a God-fearer. Meaning he, this, that, that was a phrase that talked about a, a, a Gentile who believed in the God, of the, Gentile, uh, the God of the Jews, and he would probably attend synagogue to some degree, maybe or maybe not, but he, would, he wouldn't go all the way of getting circumcised, right? So if he wouldn't get, go all the way to being circumcised, he couldn't be incorporated into the people of Israel, all right? But he was known as a God-fearer. And, and it says that he, he gave alms generously. And, and according to Jewish rabbis, you know, one of the best things you could do to show true religion was to give alms, to give to, give to the needy. And he was known as this kind of man. Oh, and it says that he feared God with all of his household. So his house also believed in the, in the God of the Jews. All right? So we have a man who is devout. He led these 100 men, you know, in his, his cohort. But here's the deal. He also led his family. He was a devout man. He was a God-fearing man. He believed in the God of the Jews. But notice what it says lastly. And he prayed continuously to God. He was a praying man. You guys, prayer in the book of Acts is all over. When there's praying happen, God moves. He was a praying man. Matter of fact, Peter, when he gets his vision, what was he doing? He's praying. He was a pious man, but here's the deal. He wasn't saved. He believed in the God of Israel, but he wasn't saved. How do we know that? Peter had to come and bring him the message so he could be saved. That's what it says. That's what Peter reported in in chapter 11. And here's the deal. What did Peter and John say in Acts 4.12 to the Sanhedrin? Remember the Sanhedrin, they believed in the God of Israel. 
For he says, there's no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. It's not just knowing about Yahweh. You have to believe Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Don't forget, this is, this is, everyone has to believe in Jesus. Whether you're a Gentile, a Gentile who worships other gods, a Gentile who, were, who believes in the God of Israel, or a Jew who believes in the God of Israel. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, Yahweh, at this point now, Yahweh come in the flesh, what's the deal? You're not saved. You have to believe in him. Jesus says there's no other. He said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he makes it really clear. No man gets to the Father except through me. Jesus, the cross, the resurrection changed everything. Yes, it's a very exclusive gospel, but it is for all the peoples. That's what we see happening here. So the call is inclusive, but those, there's only one way to be saved. There's only two camps in life, either the camp of sin, death, and Satan, or the camp of God. You're neither an enemy of God or a child of God. There's only two categories in all the universe, with God, without God. You have to believe in Jesus to be incorporated into God's family. But here we have Cornelius. He's prepared. He's prepared. It says about the ninth hour, 3 p.m., that's the time of the Jewish prayers, the afternoon prayers. And here we see, see God taking the initiative. He calls out to him, Cornelius. What does Cornelius do? Uh, <laughs> says he's terrified, right? And I don't blame him. And then he says, uh, what is it, Lord? He doesn't know really. That, that's actually a, a polite address. It's not, oh, I recognize that you're the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that at all. He's like, uh, something is happening here and I'm scared to death. But then he hears from the angel, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. It was a picture of what happened in the Jewish sacrifices. They would call out on the name of God to accept their sacrifice at the temple. And, and this angel is saying, your alms and your prayers have been heard and seen and accepted by God. So he's going to do something for you now. And then he tells him, hey, send some men down to Joppa where you will find the guy that you need to hear from. And what does he do? Right away, he calls two of his staff guys and then another devout soldier. That devout means he was also a, a God-fearer. So he picks these three trusted men to go down to Joppa. He does immediate obedience. He doesn't think about it. He says, when the angel departed, he immediately calls them in, tells them what happened, sends them on the road. Okay, 37 miles, about a day plus of travel. All right, and, and so we, he sends them out right away. So we have, we have Cornelius. He has this vision. He, he's hearing God has heard you, and for you to be fully blessed by him, to receive his blessing, send these men and go get Simon. Simon, who's known as Peter. All right? He even gives them right where to look for him. That's Simon the Tanner's house, and it's by the sea. Okay. The next day, now we're, now we're shifting over to Peter. Peter, who's in Joppa, has also a vision, all right? It says that he was, it was during noon. He's, he's going to the top of the house, and he's, he's, it says that, you know, oh, I'm sorry, jumped a little bit ahead. But he was going up there at, at noon to do what? To pray. He's up there praying, and after a while, he grows. He's a human being. He's hungry, and the people are preparing food, and he's on top of the roof. By the way, their roofs were flat, and it was kind of the where they would socialize. They sometimes have little you know, shelters up top, like gazebos or whatever, and that's where they would just hang out. And they're close to other houses. Sometimes they're socializing. But he's up there, and, and when you cook food, where does the, it, it rises, right? He's hungry. He's hungry. So what does God do? He gives him, Peter goes into a trance, and all that means is that he lost conscious awareness of what's going on. It's not like Eastern meditation, whatever. It's, he, he's, he's going into a trance, and he has a vision from God. And he, and he sees a, a blanket. I call it a picnic blanket. It's a blanket, four corners, and, it, and it's, as it's unraveled in this vision, right? God uses his hunger to kind of get him ready for this. And it down comes this, and there's all kinds of animals. Now, this is a big deal because the Jews had dietary laws that were part of God's uh, help, way to help them be distinguished from the other peoples. Back then... If you wanted to uh, have entertainment, there wasn't, like, we have all sorts of things to do here for entertainment, to go hang out with friends. 
But there, it was basically you have food together. Well, God put in dietary laws for the Jews because if they have restrictions, it, it kind of helps them stay separate from the nations because the nations eat almost everything. But God says, no, here's what I will limit you in your eating. And if you look at the diet, I mean, it's very clear. If you look at Leviticus chapter, I think it's 20, Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14, it talks about all the clean and unclean animals. Really a big deal. And he, and he said, I want you as my chosen nation to remain distinct from them. And one of the things that's going to help you is how you eat. You're going to stay distinct from them. Because if you're going to eat with Gentiles, you run the chance of what? Potentially eating something unclean. And then you defile yourself. So he wanted them to stay distinct. They were to be a holy nation, a nation separate from the peoples, not to be separate in, in not communicating with them, but in how they lived, they were to display that their God was the holy God and that they, he, was, he wasn't like their whole realm of gods that they believed in. But it all had to do, the eating really helped distinguish them. So eating was huge. It was a big deal. And remember, Peter, when we're looking at him now, he's at about 30 A.D., when was the law of Moses given with all these dietary restrictions? Years, 14 do's and don'ts. About 1480 years. 1445 is when the Exodus happened, 1445 BC. So he's got about 1500 years of, of this being ingrained into their way of life. This is no small matter. Oh, you want me to change how I eat? Oh, okay, no big deal. Oh, this was huge. They, they had all sorts of restrictions about not just the food, but how you prepare even your house to get ready to eat because this was ingrained into them about these dietary laws. Let me just read from Leviticus uh, 20, uh, 24 through 26. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land. This is, you know, God talking to Moses and they're still in the wilderness and getting ready to go get the land, right? But you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples, the nations. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean. The unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything that which the ground crawls, for I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Do you see in this one little passage, he said, you're going to be my separate holy people, and the food, he puts them together. The food will be a, a way of you seeing this, that you are to separate clean from unclean animals. You can only eat the clean because you are a clean people. It's to reinforce, through the, even through their dietary laws, that, that they were to be separate from the nations. So this is ingrained. This is part of hundreds. We've been a country for, what, 200 and something years. This is 1,500 years under the Mosaic law. This is no small matter. Matter of fact, when Peter is told, go ahead and eat, what does he say? By no means, Lord. Right? It's like he, he, he reacts like a faithful Jew. He, what he did was the right thing. Now, he wasn't fighting against God. He thought maybe God was testing me. He did the right thing, but God has to teach him differently. So God has to say a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Well, you know what? Didn't Jesus do something like this? In Mark chapter 7, verses 15 through 19, listen to this. Jesus says this, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? 
And then in the parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus had set the stage to help them begin to understand, and it made sense after the resurrection, and it makes more sense here. Food is not the issue about clean, unclean. Things are changing. God has changed things. Now, again, <laughs> we'll see. you saw the reaction in chapter 11 by those of the circumcision party. That didn't mean they weren't Christians. It just meant that they were Christians who had a very strong pharisaical background, who were in the church, who have heard this and like, what's going on with you, Peter? Because again, they had 1,500 years of stay separate. They had, I don't, I can't Jonah off the top of my thing, he was in the 800s. Jonah, when he went to the Assyrians, 700s. So there we go. 700 years of that attitude being ingrained. So don't, we understand the church was wrestling with this. Matter of fact, Acts 15 is the big Jerusalem council where they still had to iron this out. This is such a big obstacle to overcome for the Jewish Christian converts to understand what the gospel means. Because if you wanted to become a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God, the one and only God, before Jesus came, you had to become a Jew. You had to, if you're a male, go all the way in getting circumcised. You had to take on the dietary laws, restrictions. You had to take on all the feasts and, heart and all that to become a true follower of God. That's ingrained in them. Baptism was only for Gentile converts to Judaism, to the true. Now, if you want to become a follower of the true God, you have to believe that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, that he died, got cursed on the tree, taking our curse for him, that he rose from the dead, and you don't have to become a Jew anymore. That's a huge mental shift for them to understand, these Jewish Christian converts. Matter of fact, Peter and Barnabas... After this, still struggled. Read Galatians chapter 2. They stopped eating with Gentile converts at one point because they were pressured. They felt peer pressure because they were still wrestling. They're human beings like the rest of us. But God is patience. God is merciful and gracious. But we get to see the, this big change happening. So we have to remember what's going on here. And by the way, if, you're not, if you don't have Jewish background, this we are praising God for this moment right here, aren't we? Because Gentiles being brought into the family of God. Ephesians 2 talks about the dividing wall has been broken down. We're incorporated into the family of God now as Gentiles. Praise God for that. But he says a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. The food laws are changing. This happened three times. Why three times? Complete, right? Emphasis. This is, this is the way of, of bolding something, yelling it out, underlining it, circling it. This is the deal. And it says, and the thing, this blanket with all these animals, was taken up to where? Heaven. Can anything unclean go to heaven? No. Its source was heaven, and it goes back to heaven. That's another point to teach Peter, this is these animals you can eat now. But it had more than just changing food. It had more behind it. And that's what he has to think on. Verse 17. <laughs> I wrote in my outline, Gentiles waiting at the gate. What was Peter given back in Matthew chapter 16 after his great confession? To you is be given the what? The keys to the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? They're waiting at the gate right at this moment while he's perplexed. This man who's, who's, you know, helping bring the gospel. Now, this is something I noticed. I thought it was cool. It says, hey, they're waiting at the gate. What are they waiting for? The invitation to come in. Right? <laughs> now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Remember, see, he's still thinking. on. He's still trying to figure this out. Behold. Whenever you see behold, pay attention. That's what it means. Pay attention. This is big. The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate right at that moment. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And Peter, 
Again, it says it again. He was inwardly perplexed in verse 17. Verse 19, what does it say? And while Peter was pondering the vision, he's still trying to figure it out. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Who's taking the initiative here? Peter, because he's so smart, has it all figured out? No, God is. Don't see, you got to see this. He's taking a faithful man. Peter's not being wrong here. He's just trying to figure this out. And God's opening his eyes and helping him think through. And he's, he's brought these men to him. And it says, rise. What did, what did Peter say to Tabitha? Rise. It's the same word in the Greek. It's matter of fact, it's repeated a few more times in this section. Rise. Where he says, stand up. When, the, when, when Cornelius fell down to, at his feet and worshipped him, he says, stand up. That's the word for rise. Just interesting. Just think it's cool. Rising to what? Let's hear the gospel so you can be saved, I think. Rise and go down, and listen to this, and accompany them without hesitation. What was going to be his natural reaction to three Gentile men? What is his natural reaction after 1,500 years of of being ingrained in this kind of thinking? What would be his natural reaction? Don't company with them. Stay separate from them. Ah, he's being told by the Spirit, do this without hesitation. Go and do. I've sent them. I'm the one who sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? He doesn't know why, folks. And God hasn't given him all the information. Peter is learning and adjusting. Doesn't that give you kind of hope? How much does God expect you to know about your future? (laughs) He just expects you to know what to do today and be faithful today. Peter's just being obedient, and then he's just asking, what's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, he's favorable towards the Jews, that's uncommon. He was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Cornelius wasn't commanding him to come to Caesarea. He was inviting him to come. That's a big deal. A centurion. Okay, he's a Roman centurion in Israel. Who has the power? Rome does. He does. He commands men. And yet we see his attitude coming through all the way through even how he sent these men. But look at what, what Peter did here. So he invited them in to be his guests. Whoa, into his home. Peter's starting to get it. Peter's getting it. There's no distinction. Go with them. Be with these men. He's starting to get this. Then that fateful meeting, when the Jews come to the Gentiles... Right? It wasn't the, the, the Gentiles coming down to please come up, and now Peter is going with his men. There's six other men, so how many total from the Jews? Seven. I think that's interesting, but we'll leave it at that. But why would he bring other men with him? Witnesses. Again, remember, you have to, whenever something is done, you have to have witnesses. And there's always witnesses in the scriptures. He's bringing these men so they can see and be along with. Matter of fact, when he goes up to Jerusalem in chapter 11, it says, these men saw too. Okay, so they're there to, to affirm what has happened. This is so big. You need witnesses. This is a big deal. So the next day, he, he's obedient. He's going to go. He's going to go with them and he's going to bring the gospel. So the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Okay, entering Caesarea. Caesarea. Okay, we, I have to talk about this. It's, it was the capital. It was, the cap, it was the headquarters for the Roman government in Judea. Judea was not just the area around Jerusalem. It was what they called the whole area of what we would call maybe southern Israel. All right? So this is where the the palace was. This is where the governor stood. They had temples there to Julius Caesar, to several others. They had a big amphitheater. Matter of fact, some of them say it was even bigger than the one in Rome. And this is where Paul made his defense later on in this very same place in Caesarea. Matter of fact, that's where he spent several years in prison there. So Caesarea was a Gentile city built by Herod the Great. It was this little harbor that he just 
totally expanded and built a palace. I've been there. On the, the, the ruins are spectacular. It's really cool. And, uh, but he, Herod was a huge builder. So by this time, this is where Pilate had his headquarters. All right, we, I, don't, I, was, I don't even know if he was the governor at this time. But, so he goes into what's a Gentile city. There were some Jews living there, but it was definitely a Gentile city. So he's entering Caesarea. Again, geography, just we're supposed to pay attention because Peter, in the first part of Acts, he's in Jerusalem. He goes to Samaria, right, to affirm when the Samaritans are included. Then he goes back to Jerusalem. Then we see him going down to Lydda. Remember, that's where he, uh, the, the man was, was healed, right? The man who was, you know, paralyzed. And then, and so remember, on that road, what did I tell you about that road? It's the same road that the Emmaus was. So again, you don't have to remember all these details, but I just think it's interesting that on the day of the resurrection, there was two disciples who were discouraged until they met Jesus on that road. But here we have Peter going down. He's proclaiming and evangelizing a totally different attitude. And then he goes to all the way out to Joppa, which is about 11 miles further out to the coast. And there we see God drawing him out. And Joppa, again, we're supposed to pay attention. That's where Jonah, the unfaithful prophet, goes. And he tries to flee bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He's there and he's faithful. We have Tabitha or Dorcas who gets raised from the dead. Just amazing things happening. And then he gets called up to Caesarea, the capital of the area where there's mostly Gentiles. Things are changing. This is significant. Amazing stuff. So when he entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Again, a Roman soldier, a man with status and power, he's calling other Gentiles to come so they can hear from a Jew. Don't miss the irony here. Who's the one with the power? Peter is. What does he bring? The power of the gospel for salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, what's, that's a, a picture that was just, he's calling people to come hear about this Jew, or hear from this Jew. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him. He, he met him and he, he, he left his guest to go meet him. Who, who meets, who meets a, a person coming into your house? A servant does. Cornelius is going to him. He wants to hear so badly. He, and he fell down and, and, he, and he worshiped him. Why would he do that? Well, he's a Gentile. Remember, they have all sorts of gods. He's a God-fearer, okay? He knows about the God of Israel and he's favorable towards him. But he had just heard from an angel that this man was coming. Maybe, can remember, in, in the Greek and Roman pantheon, they had demigods. You know, the children of the gods. And they had, so he doesn't know what he's doing. He just knows that this special man is coming. An angel told him, hey, maybe he's an angel. I don't know. Okay, don't, don't miss this, right? Just remember what the world that Cornelius is coming from. He has to learn about the real true God, the real God man. And Peter lifted him up and saying, stand up, rise up. I too am a man. This also is very important. In scripture, who is the only one who's allowed to be worshipped? Only, only God. And who accepted worship? Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Right? Even the angel at the end of Revelation, John falls down to worship. The angel says, hey, don't, don't worship me. I'm a creature just like you. I'm a creature. Don't worship me. Paul and Barnabas later on, we'll see them on their first missionary journey. They're doing miracles in one city came out and they wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas says, stop it. We are not gods. There's only one you can worship, Jesus Christ. So only one person can be worshiped. Jesus Christ, just making that clear here. That's what Peter said. And as he talked with him, remember, this is where we know that Cornelius is just so excited to hear about this that he has come out because it says, as he talked with him, he went in. So he's talking to Cornelius and he went into what? To the room where everyone was waiting. It says that he found many persons gathered. And he said, now Peter is starting to talk. And you yourselves know, okay, when you say you yourselves or me, myself, this is of emphasis. 
Okay, you yourselves know how unlawful what's happening here goes against the Jewish law. What's, it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. See, they, they knew that was the Jewish tradition. The Jews were very well known as being very stubborn. In the, in the Roman Empire, the Jews had to have special treatment because they were so, they were so opposed to any kind of Gentile uh, you know, influence in, in their way of life. When there were uh, banners put up with, with icons um, at the temple, there, uh, there was a huge riot by the Jews. So this is, they knew how the, the Jewish uh, separation laws, the dietary restrictions, their, their desire to be clean and to not be defiled, they, they, they knew this. And so he's bringing this up. So what's happening here, a Jew coming to speak to them is a big deal. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation but God. Think of Ephesians 2, 4. Verses 1 through 3 were enemies, were at war with God. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy. Right? But God. You know that I'm supposed to stay separate, but God. God taking the initiative, God carrying his plan forward, God introducing what man does not expect, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the plan of God. Not what man expects. Praise God for that. We would ruin it, wouldn't we? But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he got the point. He transferred the food. Now it's really talking about people. He gets it. He gets what that vision was all about. So when I was sent for, I came without objection, without hesitation. I asked then, why you sent for me? Okay, I get it. Maybe he gets a point, he knows at this point. I think he's asking that to get them to say what it is. What, how come they're, they're prepared? How did God prepare them to hear? And Cornelius said, right, we see this man, he, we hear his desire to hear about God and his salvation. And Cornelius said, and then he repeats what happened to him. Four days ago, about this hour, I was what? Praying. Prayer, prayer, prayer. We're going to have time tonight to pray for a little bit because we need to be praying. I confess that's one of the things I'm terrible at. I get distracted and prayer makes you slow down. I have a list of things to do that I got to do, I got to do, because I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. The says, no, I can't, I need God, right? I need the Lord. I want him to lead me today. I don't do it enough. I don't know about you, but here, this challenges me. See prayer all over this story, this, this history. Not, it's not fictional, it's real. About this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, and behold, <laughs> Pay attention. A man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. Okay? God told me what to do. <laughs> I'm just doing what he said to do and I sent for you. So I sent for you at once and have been, you have been kind enough to come. Notice that? This is a humble man. Don't, don't miss this. Remember, he is a man who's used to telling people what to do. He's been tell, used to telling soldiers what to do. What do soldiers do? They enforce the law, and if there's war, what do they do? They go kill. He, this is no small man. This is no small leader. But you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. They're ready. They're ready to hear. God has taken an initiative. He's prepared Cornelius. He's prepared Peter. He's brought all this thing, all this together. Bless you. He's brought all this together to do something to, to carry the gospel advance a little bit further forward. And that's what we'll look at next week. We're going to look at what Peter declares. Because this, this is, again, in Acts, you have several sermons on what is the gospel. And this is a great one. This is one of those great ones you could just focus on. I'm going to be teaching the evangelism class starting, may not start next week because we have that kids program. So I might have to postpone it a few weeks. But 
this will be one of the passages we study about what is the gospel. Because it's done different ways in the book of Acts, but this will be one of them for sure. So let me pray, and we'll end here. And I uh, hope you're getting excited to see God overcomes boundaries, and he does things we don't expect, but we see God's sovereign plan in, in, in front of us. We see that he chooses, he prepares, he carries his plan forward. And that should encourage you, because no matter what happens, God gets it done. God can't be stopped. His kingdom can't be halted, right? And his people, he uses us to be his people. We're his instruments, right? It's not, it's not only Jim Hines' elder who does what God wants. It's not only, you know, Chris Zeal pastor. It's, it's all of us as Christians. Sometimes the best evangelism messages I've heard are from little ones, our daughter witnessing to grandma and grandpa or different people in our family. I'm like, preach. <laughs> no, just all sorts of courage. You need to believe in Jesus if you want to go to heaven because you need to be forgiven of your sins. <laughs> yeah, what she said, right? But he uses all of us. Will, are, but are we ready to be used, right? That challenges me. And one thing I have to add to it for sure is prayer. So let me pray, and then we will have a time of prayer after we turn all this off. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for uh, what we see happening here. God, where, where we see your grace on display, we see your sovereign power advancing the kingdom and bringing the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the Messiah, the dawn of the new age, the new covenant, where, where people are being incorporated into your family. Lord, we, we get to see that and we get to praise you because this is why we're here today. So thank you, Lord, for this history, this, this book that, taught, that shows us in, in, in vivid color your power, your mercy, your grace. And uh, we see people responding and being saved from their, their lives, their dark lives. Lord, their lives, their lives that were leading only to death and to hell. But now they get to uh, enjoy salvation in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for this. We just pray that this would, again, encourage our hearts to be more thankful, to be more joyful, to be more outspoken about you and, and the salvation found in you, the forgiveness of sins because of your life, death, and resurrection. Help us to be bold about this, just like the early church was. May we be the same. In Jesus' name, amen.